Welcome to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. My name is David Wheatley, and we talk to leadership thought leaders and draw out practical actions that you can apply to your leadership today. My guest this week is Jeanette Storsky, who is the CEO of the Association for, I have to get this right, Outdoor Recreation and Education, AOR which uh, is based here in Michigan, but supports outdoor recreation education leaders throughout the nation and uh, is an association for an industry association. And so we talk about her journey in leadership, what got her to where she is, along with what it's taken for an industry association to pivot because of their dependence previously on things like conferences and face-to-face work. Uh, How have they managed the last 12 months and some of the tips that she's found? And then the other thing we we get into in the conversation is some of their exploration of how to make the outdoors a little less white. And that started with a a journey inwards in their organization to say, what are they doing and are they uh, making their work and supporting leaders in an accessible, equitable way? So it's a great conversation. Here's Jeanette Storsky. Well, welcome, Jeanette. Hello. It's good to have you with us. And uh, the way I normally start these things is just by asking my guests to give me a quick 30-second bio of what got you to where you are. (laughs) Well, good. I'm glad you limited it to uh, 30 seconds because this could usually take a long, uh, circuitous course if you're you're a person like me from the outdoor industry. But uh, I'm Jeanette Stosky, and I'm the Executive Director for the Association of Outdoor Recreation Education, otherwise known as AOR. Uh, And my path to get here basically started... Um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I was born and raised and kind of fell in love with outdoor pursuits. Um, I have three brothers and was uh, privileged and able to introduce to the outdoors through dad and and adventures. Uh, Started as a rafting guide out in Glacier, Montana. Uh, Did my studies at at Michigan in School of Natural Resource Environment. Thought I was going to be a fire jumper, so that was a smoke jumper. That was going to be something I wanted to do, but actually ended up into guiding and leading. So I've been a Knowles instructor and a wilderness medicine instructor, uh, went on and got my um, my teaching or my certified association executive to become an association manager, as well as my master's in public administration for nonprofit governance. So a little bit here, a little bit there, uh, guiding, leadership, uh, education, uh, certifications, wilderness medicine uh, has kind of been part of my path uh, on the journey here. Oh, and I forgot to mention 10 years as the director of Michigan's outdoor program in a, in a previous life. So uh, actually programming climbing walls and rental centers uh, and things of that nature. Oh, wow. And so tell me a little bit more about AOR. Yeah. So AOR is uh, the correct pronunciation. And um, and I serve those who facilitate outdoor recreation and education. So if you're on a college or a military garrison, K through 12, or basically taking people outside. So can think about rafting or hiking or canoeing or dog sledding. The people who are leading those activities, both the practitioners or the academics who are studying leisure or recreational studies are members of my association. So my job and service to them is to help them be their best uh, by providing them tools to career advancement and professional development, advocacy work and networking, as well as communicate to the National Park Service or the Forest Service or guides and uh, operators um, challenges that my members are facing as a collective whole. So it's it's all about trying to help those get people outside and, and do that work well. So it's an industry association for an industry that's really outdoors. 
You've got it. It's uh, that's the irony, and and you're hitting right on one of our <laughs> our jokes for our annual conference of a outdoor conference that's held indoors to learn about best practices. So that's. Well, I hope you hold it in a place that people can go outdoors once they finish with the conference. Sir. You're exactly right. You know, as I through the years, I came to learn that people are doing the pre pre conference and the post post conference. You know, hitting the slopes or or going on the rivers and uh, taking those adventures. So that's definitely part of our our industry. Well, that's, that's cool. And um, deep down in my background, my undergrad is in uh, outdoor and environmental education oh, fantastic. From, from a tiny little place called Charlotte Mason College in the north of England, which is now part of the University of Cumbria. I love but, it. Um, and I went there simply because you could actually specialize in whitewater kayaking, sailing and climbing. And that was part of my degree. So I love it. Uh, well, so, so, so you, you should be a member. <laughs> I, I think I am. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of understand the history of the background there a little bit. But so, so how does your history as a outdoor, you know, national outdoor leadership leader and things like that, uh, an enthusiast for the outdoors, show up in your leadership of a, an association that's got an office? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know that that's a, that's part of the fun of the work is is in order to help people be at their best selves. You know, I might have to sit behind a desk or or do some travel or public speaking um, to help elevate it, right? So so because my members work in places that have so no um, you know safety nets and and because nature is wild by definition or can take those forms of um, you know judgment and decision making in an ever changing landscape. You know, the weather changes, the the people change, the dynamics change. Really, ours is the study of of how you respond to that, how you can lead yourself, how you can make sure that you've got the systems or policies and procedures in place, how you can think through potential uh, incidences or, or you know, um, evacuation routes if something would happen, and then bring it all together. So, so that's how we do the work is, is we think about what we want to do outside and we think about what do people need to do that and we educate and share that uh, through our association's uh, messaging and our meetings and our networks um, to, to, to do that. So that's uh, fascinating. One of the interesting things that, that tweaked my, my fancy in terms of talking to you was uh, everybody's had to pivot in the last 12 months through the pandemic. And as an industry association, most of your work is done around gathering people for conferences and education series, things like that. What are some of the things that you've, you've done to engage and keep engaged your stakeholders while you can't go to Boulder and have a conference? That's a great question, and um, and I'd be lying if I if I said it wasn't and it hasn't been painful uh, both for myself or, or for my membership. And so, you know, I, I think that as an outdoor educator or a leader in that space, um, there is a tolerance for ambiguity. There, there just has to be um, by nature of our of our work. And so, while we are people who convene and, and build community, just like you said, around a campfire or in these outdoor spaces, and we've not been allowed to do that. And and I have to say, my membership. Some states have stayed open. So, so some states are operating as they've been for the last 14 months. Others, like where we are, where I am here in Michigan, have had different uh, challenges or, or have not had the ability to travel or, or to get access to these permits. So we've tried a whole variety of things. We've tried to make ourselves more accessible through virtual conferencing, through um, recreating socials or events or meetups. We've been trying to think about issues that we know are challenging. So bringing in state offices or, uh, you know, even we had an epidemiologist come on and talk about, okay, so how do you manage a group of people in the backcountry if you don't know if people have been exposed or not before you even start the expedition? Um, and so those are kind of some all of the conversations we're having. And, and the irony I have to mention, David, is that more people want to get outside today than have ever wanted to get outside today. However, 
there are these barriers to getting them out, right? So the the, the regulations and policies and procedures, and uh, with all the job changes last year, a lot of the guides and outfitters had to find other work because no one could. So now we're seeing how that's going to impact our industry. And uh, myself and my team are thinking about, you know, what what do my members need that may have been different a year ago? Right. Do you see a lot of those people coming back into the industry, or do you think you may have lost a, a good section of them? Yeah, that's going to be, that's a great question. I think that's something that we're kind of grappling with. You know, we would like to say that people would come back, but the reality is that um, the work that my members um, do is often seasonal. You know, it's often, you know, three months for the summer season or, or three months for the winter season. And um, part of the challenge is that lifestyle. And, and, it's, and so now, um, now that that's been laid bare, uh, people have found other ways um, to, to shore up those gaps or, or to make a, a new living. So we'll be curious, you know, what, how will that shift the whole industry? And can we make it more attractive to work in outdoor recreation education in a more sustainable way? So sometimes when you have problems or challenges like this pandemic, it's a great opportunity to really look at look at and lay bare uh, some of these things that we've tolerated that maybe have been intolerable for a long time. What's if you've got some examples of that? Because I think that's something that we've all had the opportunity to do. It's been really an op- a great opportunity in the middle of a crisis, isn't it, to just stop and say, "Can I do this differently?" Yeah. And, and how do I do it differently? And the people who have pivoted that way have been very successful. What, yeah. what are some of the the things you've worked out and worked out how to pivot to? Yeah, you know, I, I think you actually just mentioned the crisis. And so I think early on, um, I had read a quote, um, never rate, waste a good crisis. And that's actually been kind of my driving motto this last um, year, year plus to think about. And I think I mentioned, again, what what has been laid bare, you know, how, why have we been doing the work that we've been doing, and does it make sense to continue? Um, and so to answer your question directly, it, it's looking at, uh, and then of course, I just lost my train of thought because I, I was going to go a different direction here. But it's, um, it's, it's looking at specifically, I think things like professional development, you know, these are some things that we've uh, taken for granted that often my members programs or college universities have, have covered. And so now that those are, have not been covered, we're asking members to, to remind them that they're worth it themselves. They're, they are worth the investment into their own growth as an individual or as a leader. And so we've, we've really leaned into that and offered different programming at different price points. Um, you know, we talk about how does this connect to a, a more inclusive outdoor space? And I know that we've talked about uh, or we will talk about some diversity and equity and inclusion, but you know this is especially in light of the trial this week and and activities um, across the nation that have been ongoing uh, that many of us who have had privilege have not had to really see or or engage with. We're we're now facing so even our structure as an association uh, associations are built on kind of white supremacy and and who can participate and who can volunteer and who has disposable time and money to contribute and so now we're having to look at what is a sustainable financial model for this association that's not based on things that we historically maybe trumpeted and parroted and, and said that this is this is what it's meant to be. Um, and so how do we how do we do that? So we don't have all the answers right now, David, but we're we're asking those questions and having candid conversations that we've never uh, never had to have to be quite candid. You know, we've we've been able to avoid it. You you can just keep on doing what you're doing, and and um, and so this crisis has has been just a real honest look at what we're doing and how we do it. That's cool because I want to come back to the the equity piece shortly. But the um, you know I think the organisations that I work with that have really thrived through this are the ones that have done just what you do, which is say, okay, this is a pause. This is a chance for us to stop doing the tactical work and start looking and saying, let's go down to our our bones, if you like, and see whether we there's a reason for us to still exist, and if so, 
let's tweak that based on the fact that we're starting from ground zero. Yeah, um, I think and it's really forced that. I think you're right. And I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I was thinking about some of the things that hold back an association, um, you know, is, is some of that group think or when people have a certain amount of, of power in maybe um, disproportionate inside of a, a thing. And we keep on doing those things to maybe appease those loud voices or to to just stay the course because it's comfortable and, and change is hard. And people historically don't like to go through change, but they like the results of it. Um, and so through this pandemic, when we've looked at the ways that we've operated, I think that's been one of the exciting things is to say, you know, it, it, like, should we put our energy there or not? Um, and, and what is that return? And are we serving the entire membership or just a small segment? And so I think that's, um, you know, again, it, it kind of goes to that equity piece, but it also goes to um, time and energy and capacity. And um, those, those are becoming the commodities that we're talking about now. Right. And you also have some of the same issues that everybody else has, but it seems like it's mildly amplified. If, if uh, a manufacturing plant has a COVID exposure, they just send people home and put somebody else on the machine. If, if you're starting a river trek through the Grand Canyon and you discover somebody's coming down with symptoms, what kind of things do you do then? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, that, that all kind of goes on to um, hopefully the, the, policies and procedures before coming on site. So, so again, once, once you're in the back country, if you have people who have not been exposed, it's a perfect spot to be because it's a contained bubble. Um, but, you know, in that, in that way, I think it would be, um, how do you create the, that evacuation process and get people out following just as you would, uh, you know, an accident or a, another near miss and then get people to the medical care that they need. Uh, but then of course you are, they're all vectors at that point. So you have to kind of think about how you would reassimilate uh, in, in those different situations. Um, so it, that's, that's been curious. The, the greater impact I think that we'll see is that this calendar year has meant that a whole um, level has not been able to become trained or certified or have that exposure. So as leaders, um, if we haven't had a chance to go through that, um, running an outdoor program is, is like um, taking off a, an airplane. You still have to go through all of the check steps if you've got 10 people on board or 100. And so our scale... Um, can have a, a really fine, huge financial impact. So what my members will experience coming back to campuses this year is not having trained staff. And so will upper administration allow those programs to stay? Um, or is it easier to, in a financial crisis, just say, well, we don't wanna have to start the plane back up because we have, you know, we'll need 18 months runway literally to, to get going again. So right. I think those are the things that were, are, are more gonna be the impact of this virus. Well, that's a concern if we lose that kind of thing because of the, the up ramp that's yeah. required the um and i've been trying to update my first aid qualification <laughs> for uh, the last 12 months and uh, i see that there's some people starting to do it online and it feels like i don't want to be certified to do cpr online that's correct yep that, that's actually one another perfect example of, of a way that we are um, have pivoted as you mentioned before is, is trying to bring in those companies that provide it and help us understand you know how how can we maintain or acquire certifications that require observation to see if you are doing the skills correctly and so i want to know that someone can stop an arterial bleed because they know actually where the arterial bleed is not not just watching it on a screen and so uh, we're talking about how they're pivoted what they're using technology and then how they're demonstrating that uh, to give those cards out so you, you're actually doing it online and and doing it in a way that makes you feel comfortable 
so what we're doing as an association um, is that we're bringing in those wellness medicine providers to have that conversation. So, okay. so again, I, I would think about it as we are a convener. So we'll bring in those companies. So members can ask the questions that you're asking. So, you know, I've, I've got $700 into this wellness medicine uh, certification. I don't want it to expire. Uh, what are my options? I don't just want a card that says I'm good if I haven't demonstrated my skills in 14 months. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that we're, we're listening and learning and, and kind of co-creating uh, with the industry. That's cool. I look forward to seeing how you do that as we move forward. And uh, yeah. I'll be up to tick the little box to get some more information on that. <laughs> uh, and the other thing that's come up quite a lot for companies in the last 12 months is the idea of risk. And you're in the game of risk and mm -hmm. risk management in some ways. What are, are some of the things that you rely on to determine what risks are worth taking and which ones aren't? Yeah. Uh, this is such a great question, and and um, if I'm if I'm being real with you, uh, this is this is a pain point for me because um, I am often willing to take risks um, for two reasons. One, I don't perceive them as risks, and uh, number two, if I fail uh, trying something new, um, you know, I'll just start again. That's just not something that bothers me. But that's probably not the answer that you're wanting or needing. <laughs> and as I as I look at my leadership development and I look about um, that course of action of hey, I'll just try something new and I'll just outwork someone uh, to get it done. That's not sustainable. And so um, I'm learning um, how can I have a more disciplined approach uh, because it's not, I'm not going to be of any service to anyone um, if I fatigue or if I'm off-putting uh, in my leadership and, and managing risk. So if, if you're speaking about AOR and the work that we're doing, we do have a strategic framework that we've developed and uh, we worked with, uh, with an entity to help us design that, not a strategic plan, but a framework, which is different because we revisit it on um, actually on a monthly basis and we can adjust. Um, but with that, we, we have a filter. So the way that we determine risks is we ask ourselves a series of questions, you know, will this new initiative or this opportunity, this risk, you know, allow us to fulfill our mission? Will it leverage one of our competitive advantages? You know, what, what is the capacity it will take of staff or of other services? And what are we willing to not do in order to do this? And so that, um, those are all the words I can tell you, but as in <laughs> practice, um, as a leader, um, I, I recognize that I'm working on that discipline uh, to, to, to modify that yeah. because I have a personality that usually starts with yes. And so uh, these are not bad things, but I just recognize as I grow and learn and work uh, with people like you and, and humanity and things like that, that that's just, I, I can't be at my best self if, if I continue to operate this way. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting. I've just pulled some stuff back out of my early college days to apply to some of the companies that I work with now that's based around uh, Colin Mortlock's four stages of adventure, which is the idea of play, adventure, frontier adventure, and misadventure. Mm -hmm. and, and by plugging those four in, you can look and, and do some uh, comparisons. So what, what level do you want to play at? Mm -hmm. Do you want to operate at? And, and if you're pushing the misadventure, then, you know, that can be dangerous. Uh, yeah. the, the place to live is between frontier adventure, where your peak learning is, and the normal adventure where you reinforce that learning. And uh, it's been interesting to take the adventure world and plug it into a company and have them say, oh, yeah, we operate here too much and we're in play too much and we need to push ourselves. I love that. I love that. You know, and I, I think especially in the outdoors, as you're well versed um, with your studies, is that sometimes it's the misperception of risk, you know, and, it's the and perceived, so, perceived risk. 
Correct. Yep. Sometimes we, and, and we also think about that as like being consciously competent or, in, you know, unconsciously incompetent, you know, and, and, and we talk about, um, you know, what do you see on headlines? You, you see hypothermia and you see alligators and you hear about bears and, and those really aren't, aren't the risks, right? The risks are driving to the trailhead and the risk is the laceration hmm. around, you know, in, uh, in the kitchen, you know, cutting the block of cheese or things like that. But we, we tell ourselves stories and, and I think that's often true. And, any facets of life and, and um, as humans, you know, and being vulnerable, we tell ourselves stories and we fill the gap with things that uh, round out and it can either make us fear-based or, or, um, or complicit, you know, really in, in our actions. Yeah, so my mountain rescue friends from England would say that the risk is uh, quite often stupidity in the mountain. <laughs> that uh, when you find yourself getting out of the car in the parking lot and walking up what looks like a nice trail, and then all of a sudden you're at 1500 feet in high heels, that's, that's the um, that's the problem. Yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't take a backpack with something else in and some water and things like that. No, opted out of the, you know, the 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 raincoat and the water yeah. and the food or telling someone where you were going or the first aid kit, you know, all, mm -hmm. all the essentials. Uh, you chose to not make the essential decision to take it. Yeah, which is that's the stupidity <laughs> risk, isn't it? So I want to come back then because you mentioned you alluded to earlier that I'd adventure and the world of adventure has been historically a white world. Yes. What's AOR doing to balance that out? Yeah. Well, you know, I think first of all, recognizing, you know, I'm, I'm a white uh, leader uh, of, of an institution or of an organization. And with that comes uh, inherent privilege. And again, many of the things that I benefit, the structures and systems are, are some things that I'm increasing my awareness of, of how that's impacted both uh, my perception of the world and my biases and and, and how I'm how I'm leading. So, AOR is doing a couple of different things, and and we're trying to make this really transparent on our our website and in in our work. But really, we're settling on the internal work of, as an organization. So that would be exploring, uh, you know, the, the our board of directors, our policies, um, you know, staffing, uh, organizational culture. Um, where where are we? What have we done? What have we not done well? How can we improve? You know, uh, we have got a Jedi task force. We've actually been doing some of this work since uh, 2010, where some members did bring it to the leadership's attention, and so we've have a, a history, and it's it's not all healthy, it's not all positive, and and so we've we've been kind of systematically trying to go through and, and learn or unlearn uh, certain practices, so we can be an anti-racist organization. We work with consultants, we work with people to bring that knowledge in, and we look at really having to do the work ourselves uh, because I think there's a tendency to try to outsource or to try to, you know, um, you know, funding is the only answer or we need to do something, but no one is really standing up to do it. And then externally, what we're trying to do is help our members, again, uh, understand and recognize the privilege that they have in their programs and in their, in their campuses or in, in their, um, in their classes. And so we're trying to empower our membership to understand, you know, how are their, how are their hiring practices? You know, are there places of employment, uh, the climbing walls, do they, are they adaptable? You know, how are they recruiting and bringing in more diverse staff? Do they have training that on uh, JEDI work that they're doing and in what culture are they upholding uh, that's either positive or negative? And so we're trying to provide them tools and trainings. We just hosted last week, a two-day inclusiveness summit. And uh, we actually designed that with uh, three uh, Jedi consultants um, over the last handful of months. And we tried something really different, David and I, and, and if I can just explain it, we brought in different leaders. We had uh, four um, sessions and each session was on a different topic. Uh, one was on the outdoor industry as a whole. Another one was um, same space, but different perspective. Two guides, uh, uh, an Asian woman and a black gentleman talking about how 
they're climbers, but their experience is different than me as a white climber. Mm -hmm. uh, the second day, the third session was on HR practices and, and how to diversify that. And then our fourth one was on microaggressions. But what we did differently is that we had the presentation for the first hour and the second hour was a breakout room by identity. And the thought was that in people in their identity groups can reflect upon how they themselves have acted or they themselves have learned the words from the presenter and started to own and recognize how they demonstrated that and, and become more aware so they could change that behavior. So, so really we tried to do it in a, in a different adult learner way where it wasn't necessarily just consuming the information, it was taking it in, reflecting and thinking about how, where have I said that? How have I presented that way? When did I do that? Sharing it in a small but safe space um, with the increased awareness, hopefully moving forward of how they can change that. So uh, I, I imagine there's a lot of people that are buying into that and it's it's been fortunate again, what we've had the time to think about it and unfortunate that there's been some public issues that have really raised our attention. Uh, are you seeing pushback from any areas? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that because we just went actually over the evaluation. And again, as, as um, thought leaders and as an association, we'll always need to take the feedback from an experience and, and try to improve it for the next one. But really, I think what we're learning is that for some people didn't, didn't even understand why we, we would have identity groups. And so we started to recognize that where the membership or attendees are, are very different places. Some are just starting their diversity, equity, inclusion work. Some are super invested and are looking for a much deeper dive that we weren't and aren't able to provide. And then some are just not even aware that it's an issue. And so I think we, we started to, um, in some of the responses, we started to, you know, I think some of the ones that caught us um, kind of flat-footed were uh, people not understanding if it was an inclusive summit, why would you have identity-based, you know, or caucusing by rooms? And so we we, we just realized there, there'll be a greater need for us to message that and, and share the intention of mm -hmm. self-reflection. Um, we recognize that often many of the, the Caucasian attendees uh, chose not to participate uh, significant portion in the self-reflection, uh, which I, you know, when I say it out loud, it, 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 I, you can both nod our heads, but I think I was, I was amazed to watch that. So yeah. it was more of a, well, that's all good, but I, that, you know, they're probably not talking about me. And, and I think that's um, part of that as well. So I think those are some great opportunities for us to, to, to think about what people need and um, how can we be flexible and meet them where they are? Um, you know, and, and uh, this work is, is hard and it's ongoing and it's um, overdue and, and it's, uh, it's, it can't be performative. Uh, it has to be real and authentic. We're gonna make lots of mistakes. I make mistakes in this area all the time, but I have to be open to, to just saying thank you for the feedback. Next time, you know, know better, do better um, with some more humility rather than being defensive. And I think that's something that we need to work on. Yeah, that's that's great because there's a place on the outskirts of my hometown of Leeds in the in north of England that was built about 30 years ago as an outdoor center to bring kids from the inner city to wow. the out just I mean five miles out of town yeah. kind of thing to do that kind of thing and and kids of all different types abilities origins uh, and because uh, one of the things I'd shared with them was the idea of to build a completely inclusive uh, accessible caving system. Mm. that would be wheelchair accessible and everything else, but they couldn't find the funding. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. One of these days I'll find somebody who wants to sponsor that and get that idea. There we back go. Out of my it sounds like, a, sounds like a great endeavor. So, for sure. Now you, you also intrigue me. You're using Jedi's to help with this. Uh, Jedi. So uh, justice, equity, diversity, oh. and inclusion. So Jedi is, is the acronym uh, that, that adds. Uh, there's, there's, there's all these different acronyms. It was just like, 
Oh, Jedi as well. No, I'm glad yeah. you asked. It's a bit See, of a Star Wars it, thing. Yeah. Being curious is better than than. Uh, yeah, we don't have the Star Force uh, <laughs> on on our side, but uh, but may the Force always be with you. <laughs> so, how can people find out more information about AOR? Yeah, you know our, our website is uh, is is aor.org. So aore.org is is the best spot to go and and uh, kind of clue in and see the resources that we have for different offerings that we've been talking about today. Well, thanks, and Jeanette, thanks for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, that was a great conversation with Jeanette. Thank you very much for that. And uh, again, she's the CEO of AOR, the Association for Outdoor Recreation, Recreation and Education. Uh, you can check them out at aor.org, as she just said. So that would be exciting. Uh, it's great to talk to somebody so enthusiastic about both her work and leadership in the outdoors in particular. So um, it's good to see. A uh, quick reminder, if you are interested in Chapter 9 or Chapter 10, the supplemental chapters to What Great Teams Do Great, send me a note. I'll point you in the right direction. David at Humanity.com. Otherwise, like and subscribe. Thanks for listening. That was the Humanity Leadership Podcast. And my name is David Wheatley. Thank you for listening. Today's episode is brought to you by the book, What Great Teams Do Great, available at all good bookstores and Amazon as well. And uh, if you are interested in what great teams do great and how that plays into the virtual world, you send me a note, david at humanity.com, and I will send you our 10th chapter of our eight-chapter book, which is all about virtual teams and how virtual teams can be great too. Thanks for listening. Like and subscribe. Stay healthy. <laughs>